This is history for the future. What we can learn from the TRC with Pippa Green. Bernard Malone was born in Port Elizabeth in 1943, in the middle of the Second World War. At the time of his birth, his father, David Malone, a leader of the Osavar Brandwach at the time, had been interned in Koffiefontein without trial. It was an experience that was to shape his entire perception of the South African conflict, but would only manifest much later, as he explains. He grew up in Johannesburg and graduated with a law degree from the University of Pretoria. He was not overtly political, except, as he explained to me, that to be part of the National Party was something in the blood of many young Afrikaners in those days. Like being part of the Dutch Reformed Church, he says, it wasn't a choice. It was just what it was. It was only in his 30s, though, that he was elected the leader of the Transvaal Jugbond. In 1977, he became a National Party Member of Parliament for Randburg, a seat he kept for more than a decade. However, he grew increasingly estranged from the National Party of P.W. Boerter, mainly because of the reign of terror that accompanied his rule, especially under successive states of emergency in the 1980s. I suspected most of it, but I did not know of uh, an institution like Flockplas. In 1987, he resigned from the NP and stood as an independent and won back his seat. A year later, he formed the National Democratic Movement, which was later to become part of the merger that formed the Democratic Party in 1989. He resigned from Parliament in 1990 and returned to the legal profession and worked as a consultant. In 1995, he was appointed to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission by then-President Nelson Mandela. He was assigned to the Amnesty Committee. Today, he still acts as a consultant and divides his time between Johannesburg and Cape Town. I met him in his Cape Town home and asked him what role he thought the TRC had played in the transition to democracy. I would say that the process of the TRC served firstly as a ritual for the Passover from old regime to new regime. And that ritual was fairly important. But then the values in the ritual itself. It also had, I think, major positives. The one was that a lot of victims or relations of victims for the first time were taken notice of officially. Before that, they had no access to any services. They couldn't go to the police for fear of their own safety. And there was official notice taken of people. I still have in my mind this image of people coming in to uh, give their evidence and you have the impression that they, that they weren't comfortable almost coming in in a, a fetal position but walking tall when they had finished. Uh, that, was, that was really one of the very positives that people for the first time in a sense experienced their dignity accepted. Then uh, secondly, I think a very important part of the success of the commission was its amnesty process itself. Once it got 95% probably of its information, if not more, which also cleared the deck for the new regime. There was just no way in which it could cope with the past and without the amnesty process get to the information to the more or less the bottom of what happened, uh, not on every case, but certainly in terms of the atmosphere and what was going on, especially in the 80s more than the earlier years. But let, let me say what it did not achieve. Firstly, 
the perception was that the Truth Commission had the task of establishing some kind of a reconciliation in South Africa between the uh, oppressor and the oppressed, the perpetrators and victims. I think that was a wrong impression left, probably also because of the Christian religious framework established. Um, as far as the Act is concerned, there was no charge to the Commission to effect any reconciliation, nothing specifically. It had to hear victims and it had to look at amnesty in exchange for full disclosure and then it had to look at reparations. About 7,000 people applied for amnesty, but less than 900 got it. Milan cautions that many criminals already in jail tried to take the opportunity to apply for amnesty, and that partly explains the high number of applicants. There was nothing political, in the, and, and very few of them even alleged uh, political activities or reasons for their crimes for which they were convicted. Uh, of those that indeed were were found to have had some political objective or reason for their action. Very few did not get amnesty. They were virtually all granted amnesty, with a few exceptions, and especially high-profile cases, as if the political hot potato was just too hot to grant amnesty. And that was my judgment, but coming from a different vantage point. I very seldom sat in amnesty applications of the very high-profile cases. Yapi Maponya is a case in point where, I mean, that was a political uh, hot potato in a sense. And one or two others. Uh, Yapi Maponya, I brought out a minority uh, finding that uh, the cook, they should have been granted amnesty. I mean, the reason why he didn't get it was simply that he thought or said that uh, the head of the secret police in Petretif was not present at the murder. And that's how he recalled it. But some others said that the other guy was present. And on that basis, basically, he was refused as not having made a full disclosure, which I think is a mistake. It was heard with others, um, but had he been heard individually, as he was entitled to, it would never have come up. Not that it's here or there now anymore, and that is not what kept him there. So there was, there were other cases, or another case where he was refused amnesty because it wasn't with a political motive. Yapi Maponya was a security guard from Krugersdorp, whose brother Oderile was an Mkonto Wasiswe guerrilla. Yapi Maponya was abducted by Eugene de Kock and interrogated about the whereabouts of his brother. He did not know. He was taken to Swaziland, hit on the head with a sharp spade, shot and killed and buried there. There was some debate in the hearing about whether he had been hit first because the gun with the silencer had jammed, or being shot first and hit later to make sure he was dead. De Kock was refused amnesty for his murder as well as some others, but was granted amnesty for some. I asked Milan if he thought that those who had been refused amnesty should have been prosecuted. I think, yeah, I, th I think people should have been prosecuted where they uh, indeed clearly did not make a full disclosure. 
But that was a very difficult issue because you know, most of those cases happened long ago before the applications. So to expect of everybody to remember to the finest detail everything is a bit of a tall order. And you can then only prosecute if you clearly had evidence to that effect, that they didn't make a full disclosure. And that was difficult in most of the cases. And it still is. And I think there's also the provision that you, that the uh, prosecutor may not use the information gained through the amnesty process. So to get to the information on a basis of primary investigation would also have been difficult. A prosecutor, he says, would have to prove to a court that he or she had found the relevant information without relying on the amnesty application. That may be one reason why prosecutions in the wake of the amnesty process were rare, but many truth commissioners have criticised the authorities for not pursuing prosecutions of apartheid-era perpetrators more vigorously. So far, only one case post the TRC process, that of Nokotula Similani, a young woman who was a courier for the ANC and who was abducted, tortured and killed, is being prosecuted after several years of legal interventions by her family. Milan says this is a good case to test how future prosecutions may unfold. Milan wrote a minority report at the end of the TRC process. In it, he went back into the history of racial oppression, interestingly mentioning British Empire policies and Cecil John Rhodes, nearly two decades before the first sign of the Rhodes Must Fall campaign. He is critical of the religious nature of the Commission and of its attempt to do too much outside its mandate of investigating gross human rights violations. He was also critical of the reparations policy. He says it was short-sighted to think one could deal with it by dishing out cash grants. I had a different view at the time. I thought one should have looked at something that would take us into a longer-term future where victims would have been acknowledged as victims over a period starting from the acknowledgement right into the future on the basis rather of giving them some kind of citation or a little card or but something that would say here is one of the heroes a kind of miniature nobel prize we honor this person the victims are lost you know. Nobody remembers the victims as such. I'm not talking about those who, were died, who died, but the mothers, the families. They should have had some, some physical thing with them which they could have shown the world and which would have given them access for free to certain services provided by the state which wasn't available to others. Tertiary education, for instance, or whatever. But they should have been hailed as... Now, these were really the people who suffered and who took the brunt of the struggle. This would have been more effective than a cash handout, he says, whatever the size of that handout. I asked him why he felt the need to write a minority report. In many respects, it's not that different from the majority report. You know, we were, like the country, even in the Commission, divided in terms of our understandings of the past. And we, we also had to develop the capacity to deal with each other. We didn't love each other. Many of us didn't know each other and it wasn't expected of us to love or know each other or even to necessarily, to a large extent, respect each other. But we had to accept each other. And to me, that is what national unity and reconciliation is about. Not the kind of confess, repent and be forgiven, but just developing a capacity to live with other people in the nation. 
if one had to look at reconciliation, I think that was achieved by my definition of reconciliation, which is not to say that we love each other now or that we should love each other, but can we live with each other? That's what it's about. He says there was nothing in the act that created the TRC that asked for a confession from perpetrators or forgiveness from victims. It was a political, not a religious process. So uh, where people expected a reconciliation in a Christian, Christian paradigm, they were having the wrong expectations. And I think, you know, victims by and large, or I mean, those who weren't part of the erstwhile regime, the power grouping, they will for years still be remembering. He explains his own particular experience of history and how sometimes it goes back a generation in response to a current injustice. I come from a background where my mother sang lullabies to put me to sleep, lullabies referring to the Anglo-Boer War, really dishing it out at the Brits, the English as we had it. My mother was never part of that war. She was born 20 years after the war. Her family was never involved in the war. They were carpenters. Uh, they weren't involved at all. She had no one who were in the Anglo-Boer War close to her. But when I was born, my father was interned in Koffiefontein, and that was during the Second World War. But the perpetrator was still the Brits, the English. And uh, I think that shock had her remembering again. I mean, the, this injustice that she perceived by her husband being interned, jailed without trial for a year, that uh, she had to link on something. And she got that from 50 years before. Koffiefontein was an internment camp in the Free State, where prisoners of war were held during the Second World War, as well as about 800 South Africans suspected of being Nazi sympathizers. Many of those were Afrikaner nationalists. I ask him if the same dynamic, a throwback to the hurts of a past generation, may be driving the new Roads Must Fall movement. I think indeed so. If you look at uh, Roads Must Fall, Rhodes was the first guy who colonized, in a sense, who took the the riches, the minerals, that's the perception. And somewhere someone was the enemy who came in here, or the beginning of the enemy. So that is a, what is the word I'm looking for? In the past. So reaching back. Reaching back in the past. So where are the symbols that you're up against in your remembering? It's not that uncommon for a roads to be rediscovered, to have your wrath vented at and 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 there's no stopping to this it it will have to spend itself if it ever can but it will be decades to come and that should not be held against the trc that's not a weakness of the trc i mean historically it's simply not possible to do that you will always identify with something in the past to remember the wrong I, I talked about my mother earlier. My father was in Koffiefontein, again, without trial. Never had a, any charge against him. And I remember during the struggle when some of the young black leaders were, in, were detained without trial and they managed to escape via the hospital and uh, they found shelter in the 
American consulate in Johannesburg, meeting up with my father on his birthday and him saying to me, Het jy gesien wat jou minister gesê? Did you see what your minister had just said? I said, my minister, what are you talking about? He says, Flock says these guys, they just wanted to have South Africa in, in, a, in a bad light shown abroad. Their files had been on his office for the last three weeks because he's considering their release. And my father said, I wonder how for how long my file was on the desk of Harry Lawrence, the then Minister of Justice, while I was sitting in Coffeefontein and your mother and you down in Port Elizabeth, destitute. Can't they understand that these people have families? Now that identification with the wrong in the past to me, that is a kind of a bridge building. To me, that is a kind of reconciliation. My father was reconciled with what eventuated. My mother was so reconciled with the new South Africa that in 94 she voted for the ANC because she couldn't vote for a dopper, which F.W. de Klerk was. So never in her life would she, in her life will she ever vote for a dopper. So she votes for the ANC. That is a kind of reconciliation. You identify with the plight and the history of others, which is similar to your own history. Milan is talking about the three United Democratic Front leaders, Vali Musa, Vusi Kanile and Murphy Morobi, all of whom had been held without trial, who escaped during a hospital visit and sought refuge in the U.S. consulate. Did his father, who had been a strong nationalist, identify with them through his own experience in another generation, I asked? Yes, and he, he, had, he had a very low view of Flock and the National Party politicians at that time. Through, right through the 80s, and more than once he said to me, tell PW he must now do what he knows he has to do, which is negotiate an inclusion of all, get to a new constitution where we want South Africa. That's the only way history really develops, where people develop more and more of a capacity to live with each other. At the time, Milan was a member of the National Party in Parliament, but he left the party at the end of 1986, one of the worst years of oppression and human rights violations. He says the main reason was the unfettered license the government of the time granted to itself to commit human rights violations. Where people were being detained, where people were disappearing, and nobody could ask any question about security issues at the time in caucus, especially not to the president. And nobody did. They were dead scared of him because he provided the shield. And I still think that was a major mistake and uh, an opportunity lost when initially the TRC did not get P.W. Buerta to give us a framework of his understanding of the conflicts of the past. He never came as I He answered some questions, but only late in the process. Personally, you know, I had to try and explain to myself, to find a reason for myself why there was this resistance and reluctance to call on him to give evidence to us. And I sort of later came to believe that, that Archbishop Tutu was asked by President Mandela to treat P.W. Buerta like an ex-president which he was. And that, and that was the wrong approach because then suddenly the target became FW, who was not a securocrat, and that was also, at least politically speaking, a miscarriage of justice. There's one person, well, not that I think he didn't suspect, but, you know, had he stood up at the time, he would have just been thrown out of cabinet and there would never have been an opportunity 
for February the 2nd for his speech and the unbanning, because I don't know of any other National Party politician that would have done at the time what de Klerk did. In that sense, he was a, at least a small miracle. And in February the 2nd, when F.W. de Klerk unbanned the ANC and announced the release of Nelson Mandela had not happened, I asked, what might have been the consequence? No, it would have been a, a continuation of Holy War and just a intensifying of the of a spiral upward movement. It really was, it was a holy war. People talked about the forces of light versus the forces of darkness from both sides. That was the rhetoric on two sides. And, and we forget where we came from. Almost every commissioner has spoken about the fact that the TRC could not deal with the structural injustices of apartheid. But, says Milan, it would not have been possible. That's not what the TRC was about. I mean, a lot was said, I think, in the report about that too even in passing, but that, that history is very well documented. I mean, you have all the budgets where you can see all the disproportionate spending. That's a, that's a job for historians. It wasn't a job for, a, for the TRC to write up all the history of injustice of, in South Africa over the past 300 years. And Archbishop Desmond Tutu told me in his interview that it was the job of the new democratic government, not the TRC, to reconstruct the country. He believes to a large extent it has done this. Indeed, says Milan. Uh, when we talk about reconciliation as such, or the capacity to live with each other, the government at the time, under Mbeki, did a hell of a lot. Simply in the way where there was, there was stability in what they did. I'm not saying, I'm not judging the policies. I'm simply saying you knew where you stood with them. Not saying what was right and what was wrong. And that to an extent, that kind of... People knew what they had in the government across the spectrum, from business to the last one down, the least of us all. We knew what was seen as what. That did a lot for developing a capacity to survive. It didn't, didn't succeed really in, the, in dealing with poverty and stuff like that. But the government went quite away, especially with the grants. The government's doing much more in terms of redistribution than otherwise could have been done. I mean, the, the cash grants of reparation is dwarfed by what this government has been doing. I asked him if he was shocked by the extent of the human rights violations that emerged in the Truth Commission. Was he aware of these when he was a member of the National Party? I suspected most of it, but I did not know of uh, an institution like Flockplus. But the reason why I left the National Party was indeed the fact that people disappeared, that the fact that people were detained without trial, the fact that people were more than bullied, physically, physically bullied, attacked in, in jail and, and stuff like that, and that people disappeared. I mean, the Craddock for the PEPCO 3, I mean, people who disappeared. And when questions were asked in Parliament, the answer was regularly. The government had nothing to do with it, and they've investigated, and they don't know where it is, and they sort of, with the left hand, blame the ANC again, mm -hmm. internal strife and so on. So, I mean, you, you must have been, a, a blind could have felt it with, a, with his stick. So I'm sure those in, in, in Parliament, we knew although we didn't necessarily have all the evidence, but we knew. And that's why I left the party in the first instance. The second reason was, of course, the apartheid uh, dogma, the groupthink of the time. And uh, again, to de Klerk's credit, in my book, 
when I saw him and I said, listen, I can't continue for these two reasons. On the first one, he sided with me. As I said, you, you will be, he will be left out of cabinet. That's simply what will happen if he talks and asks questions. So we have to abide, to bide our time and wait for an opportunity to almost uh, stage a coup. And he, and he pleaded at the time with me not to leave the National Party. I said, I would have voted for him, of course, because the priority was getting rid of the license to security establishments. But uh, I would still be in a catch-22 situation because on the other side I will still be landed with a group think, of which he was a very strong exponent. He says one problem with the TRC was what he calls an ever-evolving agenda that put a strain on resources. For instance, reconciliation. So the weakness was really administration, budget, and the ability to work within budgets. But, I mean, that's, that's personal. That's my background. You know, I, I want structure and system. And uh, there was a bit of a lack of that. So, in other words, when it decided to do the sectoral hearings and to branch out, you felt that it might have been going beyond its mandate? No, the mandate was certainly to, to hear victims. And I don't think it was a bad idea to also have the public sessions where focus could be had on, uh, on specific issues of the past. That was good. Like the amnesty process was part of it. But where a lot of activity went into uh, getting victims and perpetrators together, where a lot of energy went in to try and reconcile victim and perpetrator, that was a mistake. There was too little time for what the TRC took on, he says. I ask him where he thinks the country is in terms of reconciliation today. Reconciliation doesn't figure in my vocabulary, really. Um, I think the country is indeed, uh, to a large extent, divided, but it's getting, there, there are new um, dividing lines forming. It's not anymore a black-white thing. A lot of black people are now middle class and of the rich, whereas at the time you didn't find that. A lot of poor people may even be poorer. So you still have the same plights, but the dividing lines, the struggling to find the word, the, the, the clue of a... The clefts, the breaches. Yeah, if, if you look at society, there, it, it's shifting. Color, in a sense, when you look at individuals' position, is disappearing. It's becoming gray. So a lot of blacks are becoming white and a lot of whites are becoming black. I'm simply talking economic terms. It will take several generations, he says, for colour to disappear completely. But it is, even today, becoming less and less a dividing line. I really believe that it is much more of a nation now than it was in the 80s and before. There you could still starkly see black and white. That is disappearing. But we're not all going to love each other every day. It's not going to happen that way. Not for the next century or two. But it will be some white people not loving other white people. It will be some black people not loving other black people. The race issue will get more and more diffuse. I ask him then if the frequent flare-ups, particularly on social media, don't counteract this view. I don't think social media really reflects South Africa. That's a small group. A small group, relatively small to the numbers in, in the nation. And uproars you will have.
that again, I mean, you have that diffuseness there too with black and white, not dividing on the basis of color in social media. It's on the basis of value systems that they may divide, but it covers the same people with different pigmentation. On the future, he's an optimist. I really believe that we have a wonderful country and there will be a lot of strife still, a lot of difficulties, but I wouldn't move out of this place. It is a wonderful, wonderful place to be and a wonderful nation to be part of. That was Mr. Vernant Milan interviewed in Cape Town on the 6th of May 2016 on Pippa Green in Cape Town, produced by Jean-Michel. Thanks to the Cape Town Youth Choir for the use of their musical performance of Senzanina. You've just listened to History for the Future, What We Can Learn from the TRC. Keep listening for more insights into the state of reconciliation in South Africa, then and now.